Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Lord God, we pray as we look at this wonderful and mysterious story of your resurrection appearance to Thomas and to your disciples that Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, could become our confession and that like the apostles in the reading from Acts, we could be accused of having been with you, that people could tell that we've been in your presence and that it made a difference. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. For the children among us, both at heart or actually, if you have an activity bag, there's one of these sketchbooks in there. And I'm going to be talking about seeing tonight, Thomas asking to see Jesus in a particular way. So if you have this sketchbook, I want you to do a drawing of something that you would like to see. Maybe a place you would like to go or something amazing that you'd like to see. Do a drawing of that while we're talking tonight. So this is our third week um, looking at John chapter 20, these three resurrection appearances. And this week we come to the story that we've come to call the story about doubting Thomas. Now, our boy Thomas is getting a bad rap because we still call him that, even though by the end of the story, he has made the most full-throated, unambiguous confession of the identity of Jesus in all of the gospels. We still call him Doubting Thomas. And I think that says something about us as human. There's something about human nature where we sort of attach ourselves to a snapshot moment. And either in our impressions of other people or our experiences or even of ourselves, that maybe there's some moment, something that we did or something that was done to us that has come to define us and become the snapshot of our lives or how we view other people. And so when we call him Doubting Thomas, we are going with the snapshot instead of the full sequence, the cinematic scope of this story and the gospel with its, in which it's set and the whole of scripture in which that gospel is set. And I want us to take that full cinematic sweep to get out of the snapshot and expand outward and move through. Now, the other way to think about it is like a looping GIF that you get on your phone, just the same thing over and over and over again. It never moves forward in time. It's just stuck. So I want us to grow with Thomas, to move from doubt into the place that he gets. And maybe by the end of this, not to call him Doubting Thomas anymore. <laughs> 
Because I think Thomas has a much deeper problem than doubt in this passage. I think Thomas's problem is that he doesn't know what time it is. I think Thomas's deeper problem is that he doesn't actually know where he is. And what do I mean by that? Because in these resurrection stories, John is at pains to tell us that we're in a new time. There are time markers throughout John chapter 20, the first day, the same day, seven days after that day, meaning all of this, all these events happen on Easter Sunday. This is what the church fathers call the eighth day, the first day of the new creation. Thomas doesn't know that he's in a new time and he doesn't know that that new time is a new place, the new creation. He doesn't know where, when he is and he doesn't know where he is. And what Jesus is doing for Thomas and his disciples and for Mary and to all those that he appears to is that he begins to orient them to the new time and place of new creation. And that this is a process, that this unfolds. And as we talk about things like faith and doubt over the next few minutes, I want you to think of them as things that unfold, not as snapshot moments, but things that unfold. Jesus wants to orient us too to the new when and the new where of the new creation. And it takes time to get acclimated to, even for the disciples. Last week, the disciples, the 11 minus Thomas, were in a locked room where they were for fear, is what the text tells us. And Jesus appears in the midst of them and declares peace. And where are they a week later? In the same locked room. <laughs> they saw Jesus they're exhorting Thomas to believe, but they're still in the same locked room. John and Peter have peered in the empty tomb. They've heard the testimony of Mary. They've seen Jesus for themselves, but they're still in the locked room. There's still something of the fear in them. They're getting acclimated to this new world too. It takes time. So Thomas says, okay, you saw him. Now my turn. I wanna see. I want to see. Even in their experience of the risen Lord, even in their urging of Thomas to believe, they're still processing, they're still fearful, and Thomas is saying, okay, whatever, I wanna see for myself. So we saw last week that Jesus can come into the midst of a locked room of fear, and he can declare his peace. And in this story, we see how Jesus can come in the midst of a locked room of doubt and declare his peace and to invite belief. And it's important for us to remember that, that Jesus can and does come into whatever locked room we have. He can meet us in the midst of wherever we are, whatever walls we've built around us, whatever door we've locked behind us to keep whatever it is that we wanna keep out. Jesus can come to us in the midst of that and he can declare his peace. And that's what he does for Thomas. But before he does that, we hear what Thomas actually asks. Unless I see in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of his na the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Let's talk about what I think is the most important word in that sentence, unless, unless. He's setting a condition. And my question for us is, do we do the same thing? Unless X happens, I'll never believe. If that were the case, we could have never asked for resurrection. We could have never asked for incarnation. We could have never dreamed that God's plan was to be
be the word made flesh dwelling among us, the suffering servant, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We could have never dreamed that. We could have never asked for that. We could have never set that condition for our salvation. So when Jesus meets us in the midst of where we are, he always goes above and beyond whatever it is that we could even imagine. Jesus comes to Thomas in the midst of him, of of all the disciples, and he greets him in the same way. He says, peace be with you. And I think it's so important that he doesn't treat Thomas as lesser than. He doesn't get leftovers. He gets the same. Peace be with you. And that word peace is so, so important. It's a declaration of shalom, the way that things are so supposed to be. It's a declaration of what the reality of the new creation is meant to usher in to the here and now. It's a declaration of victory, meaning the war is over. The defining act, the vindication of who I am has happened. The resurrection has happened. So he offers Thomas his wounds, what Dave last week referred to as his badges of glory. He puts them on display. And the story doesn't tell us whether Thomas took advantage of the opportunity. I don't think he did. Most people don't think he did. Because if Jesus shows up and then you're like, well, let me go ahead and get my uh, sterile gloves on and we'll start the examination. Um, Thank you for submitting to my condition. That's not what Thomas does. He then believes. So this word unless is so important. It's important for us to be honest with ourselves about the conditions that we might put in front of God and to be honest about whether those are conditions of good faith or whether they're meant to keep us from where Thomas ultimately gets, which is to the point of surrender, to the point of declaration, you are my Lord and you are my God. Make no mistake, there is a place for doubt within faith. They're not necessarily polar opposites. They don't necessarily cancel each other out. We're complicated, dynamic human beings and things are sort of ebbing and flowing at any given time in terms of our faith. That's why we don't do it on our own. That's why we're situated in a community. That's why if I can't say the full creed on any given week, then maybe you can. and that we're confessing it together as the church. So faith and doubt are this dynamic reality and there is a place for doubt and God can meet us in the midst of that. And God is certainly big enough for our questions and the depths of the Christian intellectual tradition testify to the fruitfulness of questioning, of probing, of getting to the root of things. If you read the early church fathers, they are not rubes. They are not mouth-breathing hillbillies. They are smart dudes. (laughs) And they probed. They asked questions. How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? How do we understand the violence of the Old Testament? How do we understand creation? Is it literal? All these questions that we ask, they asked. But they did it from within the context of the faith. This is what the tradition calls faith-seeking understanding. That in the context of belief, we probe further. That we bring our doubt into our faith. We don't let doubt cancel out faith. We let doubt be a means by which we step further in and seek to go deeper. So the real question is this, unless, are we using doubt as a way to keep ourselves from that moment, that moment of surrender, that moment of awe and reverence, that moment where we fall down and worship and say, my Lord 
and my God. Faith seeking understanding means that we best come to understand things from within the faith itself. And it also means that Christian inquiry doesn't end at the moment of surrender. That's where it begins. When Peter confessed his faith, there's still John chapter 21. He still has to be restored. There's still Pentecost. The spirit still has to fall on them. And in the light of that, they begin to reinterpret all of the Old Testament scriptures and Peter is able to stand up and preach about Jesus from the Psalms. That didn't all happen in a moment. That unfolded over time. Faith-seeking understanding means that our inquiry doesn't end at the moment of surrender. It begins precisely at the moment that we say, my Lord and my God. It is from within the faith, within the context of Christian worship, in the context of Christian community that we grow in our understanding. So I'm hammering this word in less because I want you to think about what your unless might be. It could be more on the intellectual side of things. What's the relationship between the scriptures and science or how do we understand suffering? It could be a moral objection that the Bible teaches something and the church teaches something about morals, ethics, human sexuality, whatever issue you wanna pick. And that has become your unless Or as we'll discuss tomorrow night at Public Theology, Jesus has certain things to say about our wallets and how we use our possessions and how we treat the poor. That can become an unless. What is crucial in the Thomas story is that while Jesus doesn't disparage Thomas's belief, he doesn't leave him in it either. He brings him to a moment of decision and says, do not disbelieve, but believe. That is the crucial moment for Thomas. That's when he moves from doubt to faith. And that's exactly what happens. This is the great moment. This is the crescendo of this story and in a certain way, a crescendo of the gospel of John. What John has been trying to get at with the entire gospel that he has written. When Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he falls down and he worships at the feet of Jesus. Again, as I said, this is the most full-throated, unambiguous confession of the person and work and identity of Jesus in the whole gospel of John, which is pretty straightforward from the beginning that, hey, this Jesus guy, he's the word and he was with God and he is God and he became flesh and dwelt among us. Thomas is the person who gets the closest to all of that by saying, my Lord and my God. He goes further than the other disciples ever went, even though he began in this place of suspicion and doubt. And then we are told why this matters. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These signs, turning water into wine, giving sight to the blind man, raising Lazarus from the dead, coming back in resurrection himself, on and on and on. These signs, these ones are collected for the express purpose that you might see and that you might believe and that you might confess what Thomas confessed, my Lord and my God. These things are written that you might believe or we could gloss it this way. These things are written for those of you who have never believed so you can believe for the first time and for those of you who do believe so that you can keep on believing because just as we do not want to have a snapshot of Thomas and his doubt and freeze him in that moment we don't want to freeze faith either if faith is seeking understanding it's not a snapshot either it's something 
that deepens. It's something that grows over time. It's, it has its own cinematic scope. When we encounter God anew, we come even to see the past in a new light. We're going through the midst of experiences and sometimes we don't understand them in the midst of them, but we understand them retrospectively because of an encounter with God or a moment of faith. And this is exactly what happens for Thomas. In Thomas's confession, he re-sees everything that Jesus had done and said, and he re-sees it in light of the resurrection, in light of the peace that he brings, and in light of the dawn of the eighth day, in light of the new creation. There's a particularly vivid example of this in John chapter two, which is where John puts Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Jesus says, tear down the temple of my body, and in three days I will raise it up. And John is very clear that the disciples had no clue what Jesus was talking about when he said that. But when they saw the resurrected Lord, they understood exactly what he was saying. They'd come to understand the past even retrospectively. That's how dynamic faith and sight can be. It can change our view of the future, it can change our view of the past, it can change our view of the present. So just as doubt cannot become a moment frozen in time, where we snapshot and have the looping gif of doubting Thomas, unless I see, unless I see, unless I see, unless I see, and he never moves forward, then maybe we'll come to start seeing faith that way. And that's dangerous, I think. If we have a, a static view of faith, that anytime any question comes, maybe we think it's game over. But it's not because it's dynamic and it's ever expanding. And it's meant to happen within the context of community because in the context of community, the doubter is never alone. The worst thing for the doubter is isolation and the internet. Some of you heard. Being alone on the internet, that's a dangerous place. Um, so what does all this mean? It means that we can be so fearful of doubt that the instant we start to feel it, we may not even allow ourselves to acknowledge that we're experiencing doubt because we think it defines everything and colors everything. Instead of inviting it within the context of faith, in the context of Christian community, in the context of Christian worship, in the context of the intellectual tradition of our faith that has grappled with these things for thousands of years. So if you are experiencing doubt, don't get isolated in it. Bring it into the context of the church we may have learned that doubt is not okay, and yet God is big enough for doubt. He's big enough for our questions, even if sometimes we aren't. Even if sometimes we as Christians and as church leaders haven't done the best job with doubters and had a snapshot view of them. But if we take this expansive view of faith, I wanna take this expansive view of doubt as well, and I wanna leave you with this image. If you have one of these unlesses, when I was talking about unless God does X, I will never believe. I want you to think about what that might be. And I wanna challenge you that it's from within the context of the faith that you can best understand that. Just as if you were in Europe and you saw a beautiful cathedral over the hill, you could know something about and see something of the cathedral from the outside. And yet, yeah, you could come to see some of its beauty but you truly understand the beauty of the cathedral from within the cathedral. 
the light streaming in through the windows and hitting you in the context that it was meant to hit you. So Thomas might be behind that locked room of doubt. The disciples might be that, behind that locked room of faith, but they moved forward. We see it in the book of Acts. We see it the day of Pentecost. They are off to the races. And the whole world has changed. And we are sitting here because they told somebody and then they told somebody and then they told somebody and then somebody else believed and on and on and on and on. And we get to read the fruit of that and that these words are for us. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe and go on believing and deepen in your belief that your faith might seek understanding. These are written for that reason. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and you may, by believing, you may have a life in his name. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this story. And I, I personally thank you for Thomas. I thank you for his movement from doubt to belief. And I thank you for his full-throated confession of your person and your work. And I submit to you that I've had times in my life where I've had an unless. I've had times in my life where I've let doubt overwhelm me. So I pray for myself and all of us that we would bring our doubt into the context of faith and that we would trust you in the midst of this community by the power of your spirit to grow us, to deepen us, to make us more like you. In your name we pray, amen.